The following is a message by Dr. Stephen Baugh of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. This begins our first uh, faculty devotions, which we will have every Thursday. Uh, we'll go through the faculty, I think, alphabetically. Uh, and we'll be going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So this is the first message uh, on this book. And for that reason, it will be uh, quite a bit of introduction to the book uh, and the, the big themes in it. Uh, this book itself is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Galatians, I believe, is earlier, but this is probably only a couple of years later, uh, in the uh, 50, maybe 51 A.D. If you want to read about the background of the book, uh, you can read it in Acts 17, where you find that Paul has, uh, after spending some time at Thessalonica, he has gone to Corinth, and this is probably where he uh, wrote this epistle. In uh, this epistle, Paul opens in the section we read after the opening greeting in verse 2, uh, the report of his thanks uh, for, to God for the Thessalonians. And this is pretty common in Paul. He opens most of his epistles with this sort of thanksgiving. It is actually a rather unusual. You don't find other New Testament books where it opens in this way exactly. Uh, there are exceptions. Galatians, uh, notably, has no expression of thanks, and the subject matter uh, tells you why. In 1 Timothy and Titus, you don't have uh, a giving of thanks, but these are personal addresses for particular reasons. And in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, you don't have Paul reporting his thanks for those congregations, but you do instead have thanks themselves. You have the prayer itself in the form of a benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the form of his prayer, uh, and he actually expresses it in those two epistles. So we find here uh, this uh, opening in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Uh, and this is fairly common in Paul, you find, as I said, almost all the other letters opens with this. And uh, Paul does this uh, not because he is uh, trying to model prayer as much as simply to truly express his gratitude and his thanks. It's a form of giving thanks to God uh, and reporting it and indeed repeating it uh, for these people because he, he recognizes the work of God in their midst. And this is a genuine expression of appreciation to God for what he has done. Uh, this is a momentous event in the life of the world, uh, the extension of the gospel to the world. Uh, and Paul has uh, been privileged to be a part of that uh, initial wave as uh, the gospel has flooded into the Mediterranean world. Uh, and he, he sees these uh, evidences of God's working, and he recognizes that. Remember in uh, Romans, don't, you know, don't let this escape your, <laughs> your uh, memory, that in Romans he charges uh, unbelievers with a number of different sins, but the, the real heart of it is 
the refusal to give thanks to God and to acknowledge him. And here, Paul is, you know, keeping his own uh, theology. He is giving thanks to God. We, too, should give thanks to God at all times, not uh, taking for granted his blessings. And look at the blessings here. They're things you could say are, on the surface, rather ordinary to us uh, from this vantage point, but for his day, they are extraordinary uh, to the extreme. Love, work of faith, steadfastness. Now, these are very young Christian people who are already showing steadfastness in light of the opposition to the gospel that they're experiencing. The reception of Paul himself and his message, turning from idols to serve the living God, and the word of their faith is spreading. Paul gives thanks for these things. You could divide this passage into really two sections. In verse 2 and 3, he reports on his prayers to them. And then notice in verse 4, he tells you why. Here are the reasons uh, for his prayers, and he really expands on it. He says, for we know. Here's why I've been praying. Here are the, the things that really have informed and enlivened my prayers for you. Uh, for we know this. Here is why I'm praying so joyously and earnestly for you. Now, in this epistle, the concerns of Paul are rather minor. He is uh, talking with a congregation that's relatively new. They don't have a lot of uh, real problems uh, originating, and later he will experience certain problems, which I think take him aback a little bit. It's just uh, sometimes, you know, the things that he encounters, he just can't understand how people can come up with certain ideas, like in Galatians. And it really bothers him, and he acts, he's pretty aggressive and pretty uh, expresses real concern and deep uh, trouble. But here you don't really have this in this epistle. This is much more of a, a milder tone throughout the epistle. And there, are f there is one thing, though, in the background we'll talk about uh, last. But there are four main themes in this book that our uh, professors will be uh, working with. They'll uncover them in these... Uh, in these uh, later passages. The first one, I will, I will really only talk uh, in the rest of our brief time on the last two. The first one is the Christian life of faith. Uh, and Paul, in uh, verse 3, indicates that. He talks about remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's talking about the manifestation of faith in their lives. And this is a major concern of these epistle of this epistle, and it, it does enter into the second Thessalonians as well. But you'll see this in chapter four in particular. He talks about a life pleasing to God and what it's like uh, and uh, how it how our lives should be characterized. So there's you could say this is ethics, but really it's the life of faith. And he, uh, he does spend a considerable amount of time in this epistle addressing that. The second one, I think, is a theme that most people think about when they think about the Thessalonian correspondence. And that, of course, is the uh, teaching on the coming of the Lord. You do have that here in our passage in verse 10. Uh, 
and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You have quite a bit of uh, teaching on uh, future events that the Lord will initiate at the sending of his Son. And this is uh, a major part of Thessalonians, uh, the latter part of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, pretty well known. And this is uh, something that, again, will come up in this series as the professors open up the book to you. But the uh, last two are things I'd like to spend a little bit more time on in addressing in this passage. Uh, And this is number three, is uh, affliction. If you read Acts 17, you discover the kind of affliction that this congregation, at the initiation of their uh, life as Christians experienced. They uh, came to faith and immediately were challenged by opposition, particularly uh, originating from the synagogue. And this was real opposition. We read in Acts 17 that Jason's house was mobbed, essentially. Now, you can't easily break into those kind of houses, and it was probably surrounded, and they, they caused a lot of trouble for his family which is not a happy circumstance. This is very real kind of threat to their personal safety because they're Christians. Uh, and this is the kind of persecution that they are experiencing. This, of course, isn't new. Paul himself has already experienced this kind of threat to his person. And uh, it will c- carry on throughout the life of the church. Look in uh, chapter 3, verse 4 with me. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Notice he says, I kept telling you. This is a constant theme for Paul. Now, think about this. He's being afflicted by the descendants of Abraham. He's being afflicted by those great patriarchs who longed to see Jesus and his day and yet now oppose the gospel. And this is part of the grinding problem that this affliction gives. Part of the, the real uh, hurt of this kind of affliction is the injustice of it. What did these people do to deserve that? If you deserve punishment, that's one thing. But if you don't deserve it and you receive this kind of hostility and anger from people, it's part of what makes it so hard to take. You know, we hear about persecution of Christians in the world today. Very real, which we should pray. We should pray for our brothers and sisters earnestly. And here in America... I've noticed that sometimes we hear that and we have this vague sense of guilt because we're not being persecuted. And these passages sort of make it sound like we're not doing our part. Uh, My response is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. We are to pray that the Lord would give us quiet lives in all dignity without persecution. The Lord has granted us this great blessing. We have a window of opportunity now in this country to make this a launching pad for missions, for prayer, for help, physical help, for people in in, uh, undergoing persecution. It seems to me we should take advantage of it and not feel guilty. 
God has given us this time and blessing. So frankly, I don't feel guilty about it as much as use it as an opportunity. I also think that at times we feel that we wonder. We wonder, well, I haven't been afflicted. How would I handle it? Would my faith stand up? Now, I think that's important to reflect on and to make sure that your faith is growing and stronger and rooted in the Lord. But I think the answer to that is in verse 6 of our passage. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the answer. God gives grace to you in time of need and not beforehand. If you are to suffer affliction for the Lord's name, you can't really prepare for that now and say, well, I've got to sort of store up my tanks with grace so that when I, when I face it, then I'll have a full tank to uh, endure that. When actually the Lord will give you grace in that time so that if it does come, you look to him. You look to, for joy from him. I don't have wide experience with this, just a little teeny bit in the military where, you know, we've got some reviling and, you know, people yelling at us and such for being Christians. Very little thing. But I I had joy. It didn't bother me. Primarily because it was from God. And I knew, you know, I knew the difference between being a non-believer and a believer because I'd just been converted. So here, brothers and sisters, I would like to encourage you Not to be uneasy, but to be full of faith that if that affliction comes for you, either here or or on the mission field or some other place, uh, or in your workplace, wherever it may appear, that you look to the Lord for the joy and the faith to overcome it and to endure it. Because it's for Christ's sake, not only that you believe, but that you suffer for his sake. And then finally in our passage Uh, This is not very prominent in the passage itself. It does come out a little bit later in our epistle, but it's really an undercurrent. Uh, And this is the last main theme, and that is there is an undercurrent of Paul defending himself here. This, of course, is a major theme in Paul's epistles. 2 Corinthians is the most prominent place where this comes out. Paul defends himself. He appears to boast, and he, he feels really torn about this. Uh, and when you first read that as a young Christian, you think, you know, Paul's, you know, this isn't what Christians are supposed to be like. We're not really supposed to be defending ourselves and, uh, you know, turn the other cheek. And it sounds like he's being sort of arrogant here, boasting in his uh, upbringing and all of his accomplishments. But the, the key to understand that here, it is implicit a little bit in our passage The key to understand that in Paul's writings is that Paul's defense is not personal. He is not defending himself personally here or elsewhere in his epistles. He's defending his apostolic ministry. He's defending himself from his office. It's a very important distinction. He's defending the fact that he is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's defending that and that alone. Notice how he says in verse 5 at the very end, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And that's the key word, for your sake. 
Everything he's doing, even his defense of himself, is for your sake. So that these Gentiles at the beginning of the mission may have no doubt that they are called, as Paul says. That God himself is favorable toward them and has indeed accepted them and delivered them from the wrath to come because this message was given to Paul to give to them. And he is a genuine apostle. And there's this undertone here that, well, you know, he took a lot of money from you people. He's really just out to uh, uh, squeeze congregations wherever he he goes. There's this kind of uh, rumor going around like that. And Paul is saying, well, well, look, you know, you know what kind of people I was. But it was all for your sake. And he defends himself because he's an apostle. And they have to know that. They have to know that this gospel came to them from God, not as uh, the words of men or the designs of men or the uh, plan of men. This was from God to them because God wanted them. God wants you, he says. And so he acted for their sake. He had a true call from God. You know, some of you I heard at the uh, new student reception recently, we're kind of wondering about your call as ministers. And this, you know, this relates to you. Because <laughs> you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really sufficient for that high calling. You're right. You're not sufficient. None of us are. None of us are sufficient. But at the same time, you must, if you are called to that office, You must embrace it and defend your calling to it. And when you're in a congregation, you're going to have to find out how basically to maintain, particularly in a kind of egalitarian society where, you know, everybody's equal, your authority as a minister of the Lord who week by week says, thus says the Lord, week by week cancels people and says, this is God's will for you. God tells you this through me, his servant. And this is our passage, 2 Corinthians 3. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ through, toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. This is our calling as well, by the grace of God, reflecting that apostolic office imperfectly and yet from God. May God bless us as we continue to reflect upon this rich book. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I pray that in the lives of my brothers and sisters, uh, if they do experience affliction and persecution for your name's sake. You will give them joy in the Holy Spirit, rich, fulfilling joy and confidence in you, steadfastness in Christ. May we all together hold fast to this glorious faith we have because we have a glorious Savior whom we wait to come from heaven and to deliver us from the wrath to come. We pray in his name. Amen. 
Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.